I completely forgot that last week I went to the cinema for the first time since lockdown. Oh my goodness, did you? I know. I went to see An American Pickle, the Seth Rogen (laughs) film. Okay. It was, it, was, it was good. I really enjoyed it. I, but it was quite strange. Is it an animation? or No, no, or... no. It's a, live, it's a live feature. Seth Rogen plays this Eastern European ditch digger and has this really bleak life, dreams big, gets married, moves to America, works in this pickle factory. Uh-huh. And this accident effectively sends him falling into this um, this massive vat of pickles and the breen in the pickles preserves him because as soon as he falls in no one sees him fall in the factory is shut down falls into ruin the film then forward winds to present day brooklyn two kids wander into this disused derelict building and hey presto there's seth rogan reappearing because he's been preserved in breen and he then finds he has a family member who lives in Brooklyn, who happens, even though it's his great grandson, he's effectively the same age. So he plays two characters. He plays both the main stars in the film. It's just a really nicely done, gentle comedy dramedy. I think it was a bit of a passion project of his. And, you know, it's nothing amazing, but it's not like your usual Seth Rogen fare. So no, I enjoyed it. But um, yeah, it was strange walking into the cinema because there was just, there was a guy on the door uh, and then there's hardly anybody. I mean, literally yeah. like no one in the foyer, everything of course was shut. There was someone just to check the ticket, but there was literally, there wasn't even anybody else going into the cinema, nobody. So it was quite strange, but it was good to be back in the cinema watching a film, that's for sure. So you were, were you on your own in the cinema? No, there were other people. Uh... There was probably only about five or six people and obviously socially distanced. Yeah. So I wasn't totally alone. Have you ever sat in a cinema on your own, though? Yeah, once. It's spooky, isn't it? I love it. Mind you... I I found it spooky. It was daytime, so maybe it wouldn't be... And I can't remember, I was probably watching some comedy. I think I watched it on on, uh, one of the Divergent films. It was the middle of the day, it was my birthday, and I had quite a big cinema to myself, and it was really eerie, because any single noise, I would just be like, what's that? (laughs) And turn around. Turn around left and right until I got more settled once the trailers were over. I was then into the film. But yeah, I'm not a big fan of the whole cinema to myself. Well, if you're watching something like Hereditary, yes, it would be a disaster. That would be scary. Or The Shining, imagine that. Anyway, should we go on to this week's film reviews? Yeah, let's do it. So we have Thelma and Louise and Empire of the Sun. So should we start with Thelma and Louise? Sounds great. Okay, so this is from 1991. I remember seeing this one in the cinema. Mm. Um, Directed by Ridley Scott, huge fan of Ridley Scott, and written by a lady called Kelly Curry, and it was her first writing credit. And it starred Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis, Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, and introducing Brad Pitt to the world. (laughs) It won one Academy Award for Best Screenplay. For me, this really felt like a buddy movie more than anything else. Uh, We have a waitress called Louise Sawyer, played by Susan Sarandon, who has organised a weekend, a kind of a girl's weekend breakaway at a friend's cabin. And she is going with her friend Thelma Dickinson, played by Gina Davis. We have Louise lives alone, has a boyfriend, uh, played by Michael Madsen. And she's a very confident, single-minded, no-messing kind of character. And Thelma is 
I wouldn't say polar opposite, but but she's the bored, repressed, stay-at-home housewife to husband Daryl, played by Christopher McDonald, who only really cares about his job and gives Thelma no attention mm. whatsoever. She might as well just not be there. So she feels trapped, unfulfilled, and desperate for any opportunity really to break free and just have some freedom. And when Louise picks her up after work, she finds out that she hasn't even told Daryl that she's going away for fear of what he would say. So ever prepared uh, and completely out of practice on trips away, she's packed three or four suitcases and is so paranoid about safety that she also takes the household gun. And even though Louise tells her to put it back, thinking it's completely over the top, Thelma insists. So off they go in this totally amazingly cool blue Thunderbird convertible. Uh, and before they get to the cabin, they stop at a bar for a break. Thelma's desperate to stop. Louise wants to keep going. Uh, and like a kind of a, I don't know, it's like she's suddenly seen the real world, like a kid in a candy store. There's this packed bar. She decides she wants to get some drinks. So they start having a few drinks. And then a guy comes over asking Thelma if she wants to dance. And she does. And Louise is starting to get a bit agitated, wants to move on, tries to drag her off the dance floor, but just gets shrugged off. And Thelma gets more and more drunk. Louise basically says, right, that's it. We're going after I get back from the restroom. And in the meantime, Thelma starts to feel queasy, too much to drink, needs some air. So they both go outside, Thelma and this complete stranger. And yeah, the, the worst nightmare happens. He begins to take advantage of her. She doesn't realize it at first. And suddenly she finds herself in this situation where he's going to rape her. And the next thing we know, Louise appears uh, and puts a gun to his head. Thelma gets into the car and we think kind of that's that. But the guy has a few choice words as, as Louise walks off. And she turns around and shoots him, just shoots him dead. And it's just like, what? And, and it's like none of them, I think, can quite believe it. I don't think Louise can quite believe she's done it. And obviously Thelma is in complete shock uh, from what's just happened. And now she's in complete shock that this guy is lying there dead. So they get in the car and drive off with this realisation that they are now basically on the run, having committed a murder. Thelma's initial reaction is just, let's go to the police. But obviously Louise is saying, that's not going to work. No one's going to believe it was in self-defence. There were no witnesses. You were in the bar, completely drunk, coming onto him. And then, yeah, effectively, they are then on the run. We have the affable state police investigator, Hal Slocum, played by Harvey Keitel, assigned to the case to try and track him down. And as they cross the county lines heading for Mexico, the FBI uh, are then brought in for what becomes this nationwide manhunt or woman hunt. And the more they drive on, the worse the situation gets. And the question becomes, will they give themselves up? Yeah, I'll let you know my thoughts on it. But what did you think, Sarah? So it's an epic film, isn't it? Many famous scenes and lines from line dancing to when Louise points the gun at the truck driver and then blows up um, his truck to be chased by the police in the car in the, in the desert. It's a road trip film. And to be honest, in some places for me, it felt a little bit slow. It started really with the girls wanting to get away, as you mentioned, on this trip, um, just the two of them. But Louise... I would say at the start is very sensible and Thelma is a bit more wired and has a really unsettled relationship with her sports and work obsessed husband. She doesn't get any attention really and all she gets is back chat from him really. 
so because of that she kind of had enough really and she she's just a bit flirty with men generally on the trip and unfortunately she gets herself into that sticky situation and then louise saves the day from there really the whole world just spirals out of control and it gets more and more into trouble with the law really so on occasions i would say thelma would come across very immature and childlike and flirty and louise would be telling her off as well but as it gets more out of control they seem to be a bit more liberated and an ease of, with one another and, and and that's how they wanted to lead their life really i would say it's potentially say it's a, a man-hating film all the men in this film were, were either aggressive there's a rapist there's a thief but actually the most decent of them all was probably harvey Keitel's character he would you know prize out of people the information he wanted in a charming way from ladies and men as well and he would also didn't want the girls to be hurt and wanted them to be brought in safely uh, michael marsden's character jimmy who is a love interest for louise was quite sweet on occasions but then you do see when they're in the motel together he's got that aggressive side as well which just comes out of the balloon unexpected and you know it's just such a shame that men were badly represented in in this film but there is obviously that Harvey Keitel character and actually there is a connection between Harvey Keitel and and Michael Marsden as well Um, Rob do you know what it is it's Reservoir Dogs isn't it yeah it's Reservoir Dogs which they shot shortly after this film actually and I presume they had some sort of friendship connection between the two on, on the set it was Brad Pitt's first break he had done 21 Jump Street with Johnny Depp before this but I would say this was his big break and all right I was 14 15 probably when I watched this for the first time and I I think last week when I heard what the film was going to be I was like ah it's got Brad Pitt in it the last time I watched this film was probably back then so I haven't seen it for quite a while and a 14-year-old pumped with hormones probably was quite excited by the prospect of Brad Pitt being on the screen. But to be honest, this time I found him quite weaselly watching him as an older older lady. And I kind of take back what I said last week. He was ripped, let's just call it. Good acting at the same time, but not how I remembered at all. Quite a few people were, were wanting to play uh, Brad's role from George Clooney, who had several auditions and he was rejected a few times. There was Mark Ruffalo, there was Robert Downer Jr. Johnny Depp was even asked, Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon, Alex Baldwin, the, the list goes on. And Brad Pitt was actually Gina Davis's choice and on occasions should have had a double for certain scenes. And she chose, no, she wanted to do the scenes with Brad herself. So there must have been some sort of element of attraction with Gina Davis. And it, what was even weirder or st- slightly strange is that Ridley Scott would actually <laughs> steam Brad's abs with Evian before the Thelma and JD love scene. <laughs> very, just, very weird. That's like, that's, that sounds like something out of Anchorman, rather than. I know, very, very odd. What's going on there? I didn't know that. Blimey. <laughs> yeah, I read that. That's a bit bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah. So casting: Michelle Pfeiffer, Jodie Foster, Goldie Hawn, Meryl Streep, Cher, Laura Dern were considered, and even Nicole Kidman auditioned for the role of Louise. They actually thought Holly Hunter and Frances McDermott would be really good. So Holly Hunter being Thelma and and Frances McDermott as Louise. That could have worked, I could say. It probably could have worked, but I did like the connection between Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon in this film. And both actresses were also uh, nominated for Oscars, and they lost out to Jodie Foster for Silence of the Lambs. 
So Jodie Foster kind of backed out gracefully and, and went for the the bigger play film. My favourite scene was, was when the police played back to Thelma's husband, her robbing the grocery store in such a charming way because that's how she was taught by JD when they had their intimate moments and discussions in the, in the motel room. It was very polite the way it was delivered, how JD delivered it and also Thelma delivered it. It was almost like, reminded me of the sheep pig telling the, the sheep to move in a very polite way. She staged a robbery based on exactly what he told her. And, you know, she did have a gun. So obviously they followed and did exactly what she said. But the husband and the police watching it were in disbelief. And even one of them said, dear Lord. Yeah, that was quite entertaining to watch. I did laugh at that. Another one was after the truck driver is rudely gesturing to the, the ladies, several times on the journey to Mexico each time they overtook him they pulled him over and he thought his luck was in and Thelma said actually we think you've got bad manners and what happened then was they pulled the gun on him and started shooting the wheels of his truck which I thought wow they've got really good aim and then the whole truck just explodes I think that's an epic scene but also it's quite just deserves really for him because he was just so repulsive he really was the film seemed to get more interesting and exciting as they were digging that hole deeper and deeper becoming more criminals the other thing I found quite entertaining was after they had locked the policeman in the, the boot of the trunk of the car uh, in the middle of this desert. And there was a very colourful cyclist that kind of passed by listening to music and he was smoking what looked like a spliff. And he stops, doesn't help the policeman at all. He exhales his spliff of smoke into the hole of, of the boot of the car. I thought that was a bit mean. Um, the, guy, the poor policeman was, was in shock anyway before he went into the, the trunk of the car anyway. Um, it was well made. I loved the cinematography. I loved there was a shot when there was rain pouring down and the sun was shimmering through. And there was many fantastic outback shots. I loved the shot through the oil field with the nodding donkeys as well. I thought that was, some of those were, were brilliant. And it had glimmers of a female version, really, of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But I found Thelma a little bit annoyed on occasions with her giggling and how stupid and selfish she was it was all very at one point very American sort of speed con air looking when they had the police coming in and the helicopters chasing them I don't know what you thought about you know one minute it'll be beautiful setting next minute it was very cheesy what did you think about that Rob? Yeah that was actually the one scene that that kind of annoyed me was the scene towards the climax of the film when yeah it wasn't just three or four police cars it was mm-hmm. 20 that just kept appearing and appearing and and the way they managed to evade them was almost like something out of Dukes of Hazard at times because I just didn't think it was needed I don't know I almost felt like that that doesn't feel like it's off the page that you know what I mean yeah. I don't know it just didn't yeah. feel in keeping so I'm not quite sure whether that was a shout from the producers or, you know, it didn't detract from what I thought was a, a great film, but it, it definitely, when it, when it happened, I thought, oh, come on, this is a bit silly. But but interestingly, there were other parts of the film, like you you pointed out when Louise shot the tyres of, yeah. of the lorry drive. Obviously, why she got that great shot, but it's almost like they made light of it, you know, Film would turn to and go in complete surprise. Like, where do you get that from? And I think for me, that's um, one of the reasons the film works well. They're very strong. They're great characters with with great chemistry. Those two, Gina Davis mm. and um, and uh, Susan Sarandon. 
um, and really good performances. But I thought that blend of, yeah, drama, because at some points it's quite, you know, there are some serious and quite poignant moments, yeah. but also they, there is that playful, fun, light humour, which, which just which just works. Mm. Um, I like the the fact that the roles switch obviously louise starts off her journey as a quite you know this confident character and thelma is the opposite and then they almost switch towards the end i thought the scenery like you say was stunning i mean like ridley scott is a master at bringing these these almost western like dusty plains to life beautiful so many sunsets and like you say or rainy scenes or the way he uses light as we all know he's brilliant at that I love the Hans Zimmer soundtrack. I thought it's brilliant the way he kind of brought that orchestral with that electric guitar over the top. I mm. thought that was really nice. I like the fact that Keitel, Harvey Keitel, the kind of films you associate Keitel with that really came after this are more serious, dramatic roles. And in this, he was a very likable character. And like, I think it made a change to have the the person representing the police trying to track them down was actually, you know, he, he actually wanted the best for them. I thought that was quite on you. You know, you don't often get that. So that, that worked. Otherwise it would have been a bit cops and robbers type thing. Favorite moments. Yeah. When they shot the lorry is a bit of a man hating film, but there were times when these guys were just like asking for it. So that was great. He got his comeuppance in the most dramatic way. I suppose it makes it more interesting. If you had a nice guy, would it make it to the screen? Because just it's a nice guy. <laughs> it's like you need some baddies and and um, some interesting characters in the film. And sometimes when they put nice guys in as interesting characters, they, they're a little bit over the top or a bit kooky, maybe sometimes. So I think to make it interesting, I think they had to have a, a bit of a bad side, bad boy side to them. Yeah. yeah, I mean the fact this is written by a woman. I mean it's quite clear yeah. that that is that is this is saying something about gender equality no doubt about it but they almost overplay it to make the point but they do it in an entertaining way i love that scene where the fbi are at daryl's house waiting for that call from thelma and they basically tell daryl like when when because they recognize the police recognize this guy's got no decent relationship with his <laughs> with his wife and so they're a little bit concerned he's almost comical to them and he says like when she calls act like you like her get a conversation going don't, don't give it away <laughs> and so you get this scene where louise tells them like, you've got to call home and as soon as she calls daryl picks up the phone and says hi thelma and it's just so over the top that's all he needs to say before she hangs up and just looks at louise and goes yep police are there uh, and then, <laughs> then louise just basically calls straight back and says can i speak to the police that kind of humor i suppose is what i'm talking about and um but then there was some really nice kind of, as I say, poignant moments, almost like it had a spiritual sense, uh, ethereal sense to this. The mystery behind Louise's character I thought was really nicely done. There's this mystery as to something happened to her when, when she was last in Texas. Mm. You have lots of people yeah. staring at her when they would stop to get fuel. 
might be an elderly man just just sat on a doorstep or someone peering from a window looking at Louise and it's never explained why but we do get that sense that something happened to her because she gets quite agitated at one point and Thelma pushes her on it and it's quite clear as we discover later in the film she experienced something we don't know if it's it's rape but something happened to Louise you know that serious tone I think is is genuinely needed you know the scenes of rape you can't have that kind of storyline and, and make too light of it. So I thought it worked well that there was this tone to it. You know, when she stopped and looked at the stars whilst Thelma was asleep, although it was beautiful, I thought it also worked with this idea of what's going, you know, what's going on in her head. She starts off with this really confident woman. She makes this mistake shooting this guy, which although she's a kind of no messing character, that felt a little bit out of the blue and yeah you feel like you almost go on a journey more with her I feel yeah and just so I suppose just that story of friendship um, Mm. and just freedom and going for it and I really liked it but but you're absolutely right so going back to the very first point the ending obviously is you know we're not going to talk about the ending it's very memorable for anyone who hasn't seen it but that point at which yeah all the cavalry kind of arrive is felt like it's from a different film and I yeah, really just thought yeah. it, thought it just brought it down a notch or two when it just was not needed. Yeah, uh, you know, it it is an epic film, and the budget was sixteen point five million dollars to make, and they brought in forty five million dollars worldwide gross. So not a big uh, success, but it is definitely an epic film that lots of people remember. I think it's because it's so gritty and it's got that light and dark in the script, but also light and dark in the cinematography as well. I'm going to give this film, I'm toying whether to give it eight or eight and a half. I'm going to give it eight and a half out of ten. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to give it as well. It's a cut above the rest of this type of film. So yeah, eight and a half for me. Also worth noting a shout out for the writer, uh, Kali Khoury. Yeah. Interestingly, I had a look at kind of what else she's done because I thought it was a very... I mean, that's the other thing to say about this. It is a very good script, obviously, and screenplay. It was so solid. She hasn't really got on to do anything else big, I suppose, in the film world. But she was um, she was one of the key writers and I think almost creators of the TV series Nashville. But more interestingly, she's currently writing the screenplay for Respect, which is out next year, which is the life story of Aretha Franklin starring Jennifer Hudson, which is probably going to be quite a big biopic release. So it'll be interesting to see what that's like. Cool. Great. So shall we move on to Empire of the Sun? Yeah, I really didn't know how much I liked this. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. Okay, let's have a look at it then. So as an introduction, this film was released in 1987. It's directed by Steven Spielberg and based on a J.G. Ballard novel. It follows young lad uh, Jim, played by a 12, 13-year-old, I would say, Christian Bale at the time. Um, who was passionate about warplanes and wanted to be in the Japanese Air Force. We also follow him through like his expat lifestyle in Shanghai and with his lavish house, servants, privates, school education. And he was also like a choir boy as well in his school environment. Um, and we follow him through right through to poverty where the Japanese have invaded China in World War Two, and he has held in a prisoner war camp. And you see him right through to the end of the war as well. 
the film has a few a little few ups but a lot of downs as we see him surviving really in this torn up world during world world war Two. and what i thought actually was apt is that i didn't realize when we chose this film that obviously it was vj day last week as well and what I'm shocked about is the fact that I didn't see this film on any of the TV networks or uh, online channels at all. You had to buy or rent it. And I saw that on most of the films, apart from the Railway Men. I think there was a Railway Men film that was on BBC One. But yeah, I thought they could have done more because usually when we have VE Day, there's a lot more films available to watch, to, to educate people about what it was really like in those days. So I was a little bit surprised that a film like this was, wasn't on, on there. But with this, start, we, we saw Jim lose his parents in a very overcrowded city of Shanghai as everyone flees for safety as the Japanese fighter planes fly overhead. He walks back home for safety and then when he finds he gets there it's an empty household and there's some evidence that his mother's been abducted as well taken away there's lack of food he's sort of scrabbling around for food but he's, he's got his bike and he likes cycling around on his bike which was quite sweet to see but there's one scene where there's furniture taken away and the servants were taking that away for themselves I believe and one of the housemaids sort of swipe him around the face because he was a bit cheeky to him in a scene that we saw earlier as well so as a child before the war he was a little bit cheeky and a bit sort of spoilt really and we start seeing a real difference to his character as we go through the film he flees from there and then goes back to the city where he meets firstly frank who really runs jim over in this truck running away from a kid that stole his jim's shoes and then uh, basie who is a more dominant character as well and then he tries to stay with Basie as much as possible because he sees that strength in him and he's got to know him a little bit. And, and when they're captured on the return back to Jim's house to try and start their life there, it, they found out it was owned by the Japanese emperor at the time. And then they were captured and taken to this prisoner of war camp. Majority of the film, you see them in the prisoner of war camp, I, I would say. Jim's confidence and smart thinking shine when he's in this war camp. And he's seen as a little kid, really. But then the adults start to realise that he's actually got quite a bit of an influence over the general in charge of the camp. We see from starvation to beatings to how the camp have divided also from countries, from US to English quarters. And we just see many signs of, of madness as well that are coming through some of the characters in the film. I feel there are elements of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in this film, strangely. But we've got the same director here. We've also got the same musician here with um, John Williams. Now, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom had short round in it and I felt there were some elements that Jim could almost have a similar style to how short round delivered his role in that 1984 Indiana Jones film and, and there were certain camera angles as well that was shot of, of Harrison Ford when he was in Indiana Jones of some of I think of Nigel Havers at one point there's just some similarities I'd love to get your your thoughts on that in a second but just to run through some of the actors that are in the film so we've got mentioned Christian Bale many British actors in this, Miranda Richardson, Paul McCann, Nigel Havers, he had a, quite a big role in this. And then Leslie Phillips was a blast in the past and someone I didn't expect to be in this film. He, you may have seen him from Out of Africa and uh, many slapstick comedies, including Carry On. 
films and, and more recently he was in the Harry Potter's films. Well, I wouldn't say they're recently either because they filmed quite a while ago, but more recently to the other ones. You've got the US side as well. You've got John Malkovich as Basie. You've got Joe Pantoliano, who was Basie's sidekick, Frank. And we also have a very young Ben Stiller playing Dainty and he was part of Basie's uh, US gang. So very sweet moments and some harrowing ones. Rob, what are your thoughts? Well, I think the first thing that people will find when they watch this is just the impact that's made by seeing a very young Christian Bale because, you know, he was chosen out of 4,000 kids to play this role. It's his first time he'd acted, certainly in a feature, but I don't know if it's the first time he acted professionally. Yeah, um, he did, he start, I think he started his career in 1986 and 87 was when this film was shot and he did about three films. Well, this is the biggest one, obviously, but three films in the same year. <laughs> Yeah, it's like he kind of came to real stardom, I suppose, with American Psycho. And from then on, his stature has just kind of grown and grown and grown. And these days, yeah. like he's, he's A-list, isn't he? He gives everything yeah. to his roles and, you know, he has that reputation, has that presence. So seeing him as this 12-year-old boy, all of his, obviously, I mean, obviously all his features, are you recognise it all. There we were reviewing The Dark Knight um, only a few weeks back and to see him, you know, start out under the mentorship of, from what I hear, quite a fatherly figure to him for this film in Steve and Spielberg was quite something. And so in terms of his performance, I thought it was incredible. There were some moments I thought with him where it felt like some of it looked quite choreographed and maybe slightly on the nose. Like there were some scenes, the scene where he loses contact with his mum in the crowds and he finds himself on his own for the first time in the city. And, and he's you know running into Japanese soldiers as they come into the city and he, it's all just completely chaotic. And I, I thought some of those scenes didn't look incredibly convincing, but, but you know, for a 12-year-old in a film where everything is about him. You know what I mean? I mean, he's he must be in almost... Mm. I mean, what percentage of shots is he in? He's in almost all of it. Yeah. And so much of it is, you know, the subtlety of his gestures, so a lot of it has to come from just his expressions. And the character himself, you know, this whole theme of loss of innocence, really. You know, there he is with his family in a very, very sheltered existence. And suddenly he's thrown into this world, which on one side he, he's always wanted because he has this incredible passion for planes and seeing any soldier, whether it's Chinese or Japanese in a, in a plane, he thinks they're heroes. You know, they're his heroes. It doesn't, you know, he doesn't really have this concept of what's actually going on in the bigger picture of the war, who's on which side. He's just totally mesmerized by anyone in a plane. So yeah, so he goes from this incredibly sheltered life to, yeah, being, yeah, I mean, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? The scene where he loses his mum in the crowd. Um, and that's, that's it. I mean, you know, he doesn't see his mum then until towards the end of the film. From then on, it's like, it's horrible seeing his innocence just stripped away, stripped away, stripped yeah. away. Yeah. Whether it's the characters he meets, I mean, primarily it's stripped away because he's very quickly, he's just into a kind of survival mode. And it's almost like when he's running around to begin with in the streets, it's like he's going up to anyone, any soldiers of any kind and putting his hands up saying, I surrender. It's like it's something maybe he's seen in a film. You know, it's I surrender, I surrender. And it's yeah. almost like the soldiers just ignore him. And then, of course, when he meets Basie, Basie, played by John Malkovich, 
you realize very quickly what kind of cunning, manipulative character this guy is, a real survivor who's, who's really just looking at how to make some money and get by and stay ahead of the game. And that, I found Basie a tricky character to get on with because there were sides of him where you felt, you know, he cared for Jim. And I think deep, deep down he did, but the but his overriding instinct all the time was to look after himself. And yeah. so I think that slight battle was quite interesting to watch, although ultimately I found him quite hard to invest in. I thought it was interesting to see glimpses of Spielberg's future work in it. I mean, it, the scenes in the city, again, going back to this, this scene where they're all being driven out, reminded me a bit of, it is a different tone, far more sombre and serious, but the scenes when, in Schindler's List, when they're being flushed, you know, the Jews are being flushed out of the ghetto. But as I say, you're right, there's more of a kind of an epic mm. adventure feel to this, which, which you're right, is more, yeah, is more Indiana Jones than anything all the way over to that more serious film such as uh, Armistad or Schindler's List and stuff like that. You know, my favourite scenes are the scenes I suppose that I've always remembered this film for. So the scene where Jim is watching the American planes coming over the, the internment camp and there's this huge, these kind of celebrations going on and he runs up to one of the lookout towers and he's jumping around and he's, but he's watching in awe. You still kind of get the impression he doesn't really know what's going on because he's still so yeah. young, but he's more just in awe of all these planes coming over. You know, he realizes they're American. And interestingly, that was quite a big set piece. And Bale couldn't quite execute the direction that he was given by Spielberg. Spielberg asked him, this is the big shot, the money shot. And he was asked to just jump around, be excited. But with all of the explosions going on, apparently Bale froze and Spielberg didn't get the sequence he wanted you know in the take they had to get it whilst oh, everything wow. else was going yeah. on I mean he worked around it he cut around it and he had to get Bale to redo it and cut it in so you wouldn't know but I thought it's just interesting you're never really surely going to get situations <laughs> with a 12 year old actor in a film like this yeah. it's not always going to be straightforward I think if there's loud explosions I mean that'll shock anyone to be honest so yeah absolutely and yeah. actually Seeing as we're talking, we were talking about Thelma and Louise, the same happened with Thelma and Louise, the explosion of the lorry. Ridley Scott kept the camera running on Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, hoping to get a genuine reaction. But they were so just totally and utterly shocked that it didn't work. And, and he had to just film it as a separate cutaway because they were just yeah. genuinely didn't get the reaction he wanted. Um, yeah, it, it's quite slow in places, but that's, I wouldn't say that's to its detriment. It, it's more that you don't often see films like this anymore. For me, it, it feels very of its day. It is an epic film. You know, you, you mentioned John Williams. You think of Spielberg in the early part of his career. You know, interesting, David Lean was uh, originally wanted to direct this film. You think of David Lean and Lawrence of Arabia, and you start to kind of get a sense of it's that, it's not as drawn out as Lawrence Arabia but I mean it has that kind of almost it almost yeah. harks back to a different age of cinema doesn't it yeah, yeah which which you don't which you're not you're not used to seeing today so that's why I was a little bit it was a very powerful film there were like you say there were some very uplifting scenes very harrowing scenes in it but I came away from it almost a bit shell-shocked because you just don't see films like that anymore um just as a final point the one scene that totally got me was the scene where you've got all of the children are 
drawn up and all of the parents arrive and, and yeah, everyone's trying to recognize and pick out their children. Yeah. And you have that scene where Jim's with his mum. Oh my goodness. I, I was, I was in tears to yeah. be honest. And that really yeah. came out of the blue for me. And I think that's the thing. It, it's, it's, it's the personal part of it rather than the dramatic part of it in terms of the themes, that theme of separation from the family and that look on his face when it's all over and he takes a while to even hug his mum. But when he does, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I shed a tear definitely at that point. And I found he was more, yeah, emotionless. He, I don't think he realized, I don't think he thought he would get found. He had his head down looking away, didn't think his parents would turn up and both having both parents as well, because a lot of the parents, a lot of the kids had one parent that would, that would turn on many of them with the, with the mothers. Yeah. That was quite moving definitely. And the other moving part for me was when they had to flee the camp and they went into this area where there was so much furniture that had been taken from the houses in the expat houses and they're all there it was just like wow it was it was almost like in a stadium a stadium of furniture wasn't it yeah and it was really eerie wasn't it yeah. it was really eerie because yeah. it just seemed like it didn't belong and mm. suddenly suddenly people saw their own cars yeah, yeah, and cars. Oh. He is, saw his car there, wasn't it? Or what he thought was his car anyway, was there. But yeah, that was quite moving. And oh gosh, I just couldn't imagine what it would have been like. And, and that's what really gets to me. Because I mentioned last week that I was probably, I'm, only about, I'm probably about two years younger than Christian Bale. And when I watched that for the first time, I was a similar age. And I was thinking, what would I do in that situation? And this film definitely got me more interested in films generally just from that scene where the slow motion aeroplane flies by when the Americans come in and invade the Japanese quarters. Yeah, I mean, it's just shots like that I just thought were stunning and there's some lot of amazing cinematography within this film as well. I mean, it was up for a lot of Oscars, but The Last Emperor was the one that pipped it to the post each time and it must have been so gutting. I mean, between the two films, The Last Emperor is definitely a critic's choice film for me this is a film for me more because I, you get a more sense of the emotions, etc. Whereas last emperor was definitely for the critics. I feel. I also, you know, talking of emotional moments, obviously this, that kind of choral lullaby that's sung when you see Jim as a choir boy at the very, very beginning of the film. And then when he, he sings that in the prison camp at a very Mm. poignant moment, these are the moments that I remember. These are the moments mm. that I remember when I first watched it. And even then, watching it now, when they occurred, mm. they hit me again. However, um, he didn't actually sing it, did he? <laughs> I, I, so that, wanted that... It. I so wanted Christian Bale to have this amazing voice as well. <laughs> but apparently it was picked, it's a Welsh song, and it yeah. was picked because <laughs> Bale starred in it, apparently, with his Welsh heritage. But... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. Now, I'm, the more I'm talking about this film, the more I actually probably have stronger feelings about it than I may have once thought. Yeah, I think it's just because you don't... It's like they don't make them like this anymore. <laughs> no, no. But it is another epic, I think. I think we've had two epic films this week. And love to get your, your rating for this one, Rob. I think I'm going to give this... I'm also going to give it eight and a half because it is yes you're right it's an epic film and it's probably also has that nostalgia for me as well but i'm going to put it alongside Thelma louise both films eight and a half for me 
So the interesting thing, actually, because I mentioned the, the, the budget for Thelma and Louise, and I thought that was quite a low grossing amount. Remember, this is like however many years ago, <laughs> a long time ago. But the budget for, to make this film, Empire of the Sun, $35 million, but it grossed worldwide. It looks like it made a loss. It was $22 million. I'm quite shocked by that. <laughs> well, I, I think think I read that it, it did. It's what it did subsequently on DVD and home entertainment that got its money back. That That's where it had yeah. its success. It's like you say, overshadowed by The Last Emperor. Didn't have a huge impact, even though it was a Spielberg film when it came out. But I think it's grown and grown and grown. So I think, yeah, I think it may well have disappointed from that point of view to start with. But it made a bit of that ground back, I think, for the reputation it maybe gained afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been quite torn since when we're talking, I've been scribbling numbers down. What should I give it? What should I give it? I'm going to give it a nine out of 10, actually, because for me, this definitely got me very interested in in filmmaking and films generally. I I think it's got a lot of personal touch to it for me and also it was did so well be nominated for all those Oscars that year and the acting from Christian Bale at his age was incredible as well so nine out of ten for me well fair play I mean it's it's definitely a film that deserves a lot of high praise so now you've got me thinking again that I've given my rating so I can't I can't I can't go back a good old Nigel Havers as well. I like Nigel Havers. Yeah, I, I know. Real, real and strength, uh, strength of character in this in this film as well. And Ben Stiller. It made me go back. It made yeah. me look at Ben Stiller's filmography, and it's incredible how long he's been around. I mean, he'd done a lot even before before his, appearing in this. His teeth, though, in his this teeth. film. Wow, he, I know. he must have had his, a teeth job. <laughs> I know. Exactly. That's what I thought. I thought, is that really him? I kept looking at photos. <laughs> yes, it is him, because the name matches, yeah. Yeah, yeah he was 22 in this film, so uh, a very young Ben Stiller, definitely, yeah. Great. So we had eight and a half and nine out of 10 for Empire of the Sun. Good stuff. Right. So just a little admission. So last week when I drew Thelma and Louise, um, it was under action and it shouldn't have been under action because it's not an action. It's a drama adventure crime. Um, So that's going to go back in the hat, isn't it? Action. So we've got three for this week that are left. So we've got action, horror, thriller and romance. Okay, so I'm going to pick first. It's thriller horror. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. So I have 13. I'm going to go for number one. Number one. It's Die Hard 2. Die Hard, Die Hard 2. 2. Yippee, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In 1990. And obviously has uh, Bruce Willis in it as well. So I. This is interesting because, you know, we were talking last last week about Toy Story 2 being one of those films that rare films where the second is up there with the first. Yeah. I remember seeing Die Hard 2 at the cinema and I remember really liking that. So, yeah. I mean, have you, I do have to ask, I'm assuming you've therefore somewhere lurking on that same list is Die Hard. <laughs> I know, because I actually prefer Die Hard 2. Um, and interesting on IMDb, there's a mix of opinions between the two of them, but I prefer Die Hard 2. It's basically Die Hard, but with planes yes, and, air- exactly. and airports. <laughs> yeah, full of, full, of, full of action as well. So action thriller it is. And um, so it ticks both of those boxes for this week. At the moment, you can rent and buy from Amazon Prime, Sky Store, Apple TV, Rakuten TV, etc., etc. Right. Go for it then. Your turn. 
I've got romance. Romance. Looking for a little romance, given half the chance. Bit of uh, Christopher there for our listeners. Very nice. <laughs> I have 19. 19. Gosh, you're quite a romantic soul, really, aren't, aren't you? I? I'm waiting for that. <laughs> Although, like, I mean, if it's, if it's going to be another vertigo... <laughs> I mean, like, oh, can you steer all, me? <laughs> I might have to be careful. I might have to self-edit as as you choose here in case some of these okay. aren't strictly out-and-out romances. But anyway. I'm going to go for number five. Number five is Pretty Woman. Oh, fantastic. Pretty Woman. Walking down the street. Pretty Woman. I don't have a clue what the next words are. Pretty woman. <laughs> Everyone's got a dream. What's your dream? Uh, brilliant. Okay. Okay. So we've got so, some kind of mainstream movies, let's, let's call it. By complete coincidence, these are both from 1990, and they definitely feel mainstream of that era, don't they? Yeah. The man in a legal but hurtful business needs an escort for some social events and hires a beautiful prostitute he meets only to fall in love. And do we really need to say that this stars Richard Gere and Julia Roberts? The film that launched Julia Roberts was into the stratosphere really yeah and again it's to rent or buy um, but i'm sure many people got it on dvd or something as well and it's rented by amazon prime sky store apple tv etc etc good stuff well thanks for all of the amazing insight facts figures etc etc as usual and um we're back next week yeah all right sarah see you then bye bye bye